Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. This morning I have the honor of visiting with Will Steger, polar explorer and a man who has been eyewitness to the greatest changes to the polar regions of our planet. He's worked with Al Gore on climate change and establishing the internet as a way to educate people about climate change. And he currently continues to venture on groundbreaking expeditions and is living off the grid in a log cabin that he built by hand in Ely, Minnesota. Good morning, Will. Good to be here, yeah. Will, I've had you on before when you wrote your book, North to the Pole. I did an interview with you because I just found that so fascinating. Of course, that's been quite a few years ago now. 30 years ago it was. Yeah, Yeah, right. And, And so now you're living up in Ely, Minnesota. Let's talk a little bit about your expeditions. First of all, one of your notable ones is the Transantarctic, and that was uh, what year? That was 8990. We did uh, a traverse of the longest route, uh, 3,700 miles across Antarctica with an international team of six people from six countries with 30 dogs. Do you still have your sled dogs, by the way? No, I don't. I finished the major dog sled expeditions about 20 years ago. So are you still doing any expeditions or, or not any longer? Yes, I'm still active. Uh, okay. I'm doing solo expeditions of breakup in the spring in the Canadian Arctic, although I wasn't able, of course, to get across the border the last two years, so I had a little bit of a break here from the expedition since the COVID. You have obviously seen a lot of things up, witnessing the changes in the climate, having traversing the north, and, and I guess now it's a big, uh, the changes in climate and topography are quite alarming. Would you talk a little bit about how 30 years ago when you were traversing across there to how things have changed now in the, the area? Well, it was, it was predicted early on that the first changes would be in the Arctic regions because of most of the Arctic is ice, of course, uh, land and some sea ice, of course, and then they predicted that the ice would start melting first. And, and once you start losing that ice cover, which reflects heat, you start absorbing so, and that's what happened in the 90s and at the turn of the century. You started to see a warm-up and a changing of climate uh, in the, uh, the Arctic regions, for sure, north of us. The ice shelves started breaking off in Antarctica and the North Country um, uh, back in the, in the late, late 90s, early, early turn of the century. So, and uh, back at that time, uh, 2002, I, I'm from Minneapolis originally. I've lived in Ely the last 50 years, but... Uh, 2002, when the Larsen ice shelf broke up in Antarctica, I moved back to the city to start climate generation. I basically wanted to start start the uh, uh, the climate movement uh, because of what I was seeing in the Arctic. Uh, back then, we didn't have the, the radical changes. Uh, 20 years ago, people can probably remember back then. Uh, but then, within probably the last seven, eight years, it really started changing uh, around the whole world. That that's when we started to see climate change. Uh, we all became eyewitnesses, and uh, especially this last summer and right now, it's uh, it's uh, it's pretty hard to deny what's going on. It's uh, record high all around the world. Well, some people say maybe it'll be back to normal next year. There are the climate change deniers. How do you respond to them? Well, I, I generally don't argue about the climate uh, uh, with 
people. I, I would argue with uh, politicians and people in the media, uh, but uh, because some of the, you know, it's a lot of misinformation out there, mm-hmm. and it's a proven, you know, fact in science. We knew what was going on. It was predicted, and we're seeing what's happening. And uh, uh, But I would think that um, if you were denying it, and uh, I think uh, it would be probably good to err out of caution to take a look at possibly this could be uh, I'll represent a real urgent change in the climate, and uh, we'll see next year and the year after uh, to see if that, you know, see what happens. But uh, for sure, the radical changes of uh, weather that we're having is, is something that's going to be very common uh, starting now. I noticed one in one article I read that you are an avid gardener, and I'm also a master gardener, so that's really a big particular interest of mine. And I've seen as a gardener some of the changes through the years that have been pretty dramatic in the types of plants we can are be able to being able to have, including the changing in zones. I was just curious in your experience, how has you observed that in your own gardening experience? Yeah, you know, um, anyone who who works out, out of doors, a farmer, construction worker, anyone that has an intimate relationship or investment in in the climate uh, is really aware of that. In the last decade and two, uh, they've seen the changes. I think the farmers have seen that for sure. Uh, as a gardener here up in Ely, Minnesota, uh, right now we have a major drought. But uh, uh, the apple trees, for example, we can grow apples now that you could never have grown here. You can grow, grow the same zone as what Minneapolis used to be. Uh, so uh, there's a little bit of advantage that way in the, war- in the warmer weather in the north. The, the growing season's a little longer, but the downside of that is that warmer weather and changing climate brings a lot of evasives and a lot of pests that we never had. Uh, what protects our northern environment, our forests, and the plants, and the animals that rely on the plants, uh, is the real super cold winters that we normally would have, is at that temperature we have a consistent 20, 30 below, or 40 below. That kills off a lot of the evasives, uh, but now we're starting to see more of these evasives come back or now come or moving north uh, because it's warmer. And uh, so it, it's a remarkable changes. And you know, we are seeing insects and some birds and that that are no longer coming back. I don't, still don't see them anymore. It's not to say they're extinct, but they're definitely in a, probably in a different region. Or, uh, they once, once flourished in this colder climate. They, they may have went further north if they were available, if they were able to, but plants don't have the advantage of having legs or wings. <laughs> uh, they're really stuck in one place. And, and uh, so a lot, of, a lot of the plants will radically change. You are, what, 75 or 76 years old now, correct? Yeah, I'm 77 next week. Okay, next week, 77. So let me ask you, what inspired you as a young boy to get involved with climate change? I mean, was it all of a sudden one day you said, I got to do this, or was it a gradual seeing what was happening that made you get involved? Well, you know, I, I was a pretty normal kid. I had I had incredible curiosity about the nature the world around me. I was that adventurous spirit, which is, I think, common in a lot of kids. Um, I was very fortunate uh, with my parents. They had a really great relationship, but they gave us a lot of freedom, freedom to explore. And uh, I always had this innate love and curiosity about uh, changing weather. So I started uh, taking, making weather records when I was eight years old. I still take records, keep records right now. So I had that interest in weather, and I, I carried that through my life. I actually wanted to be a climatologist hmm. uh, as a career, 
Uh, but I just was, I wasn't able to do the math and the physics. So <laughs> I ended up majoring in geology where I, where I studied glaciology. But, uh, but then, you know, I, I, I taught climate change in my class, uh, classroom, uh, uh, back in the late, late sixties. Uh, back then, you know, it was obvious that, uh, you know, if you add some fossil fuels, carbon dioxide, the worst, the uh, atmosphere warms up. But back then, we had no idea that you know there'd be the changes we we were seeing. So I didn't jump on any bandwagon about climate change. You know, ten years, twenty years ago, I was always there. I was always uh, aware of it. And, and uh, being an expedition person in the polar regions, of course, I know a lot of scientists, uh, a lot of climatologists, where I get a lot of information on routes and so forth. So I've always been updated on what was happening. And uh, so, but even myself, knowing and studying it all my life, uh, the, the speed in which this is happening is really quite alarming. I, I can say now we, we are in the middle of the climate change. Now it's really the weather is starting to go pretty much out of control. Uh, we still have uh, some possibilities here. If we can cha- you know, get rid of our fossil fuels as quickly as possible, but we need energy. I mean, uh, we're, we're dependent on fossil fuels for a percentage, but we have clean energy and conservation. Uh, we have a huge, huge industry at clean energy. I think a lot of people in the Cato area are, are employed in that area. But it's not just the energy, it's the conservation of the energy that we have mm-hmm. through proper designs and so forth, which is all job creator, local job creator. Uh, so we, we really have to make a, a rapid move here uh, to uh, utilize this. And actually, uh, it's a real opportunity here for our future future economy because this is going to employ a lot of local jobs. Where if you have fossil fuels, uh, there are very few fossil fuel jobs in Minnesota, so to speak. We don't have fossil fuel in the ground. Uh, we spend something like $15 billion a year, I think, in Minnesota on fossil fuels. Most of that money goes outside the state. Whereas if we're looking at conservation, clean energy, most of that money stays in the state. So, uh, and we become more self-sufficient, which makes us more recession-proof. So it's really a win-win. Uh, I approached it first uh, through education, of course, because I'm an educator, but I approached it through economics. I, I, I knew that we could get the carbon out of the atmosphere by clean energy and conservation of energy and so forth. All of these are job creators. It creates a, a large constituency, uh, and when you're creating jobs, you usually you have uh, uh, your politics on your side, and and this is where where kind of what happens. You draw a constituency that uh, then you know you, it's a free inter- it's a free system here for a democratic system that the vote. Uh, so if you have a large consistency uh, constituency, then uh, you get the vote and you make make the proper changes for the economy. Well, you founded the climate. Generation. It's a nonprofit empowering individuals to engage in climate change solutions. So some of the things you mentioned about finding new energy sources, clean energy sources, is that part of what your organization is is doing and working toward? Yeah, we work in uh, three areas. We're one uh, primarily, you know, we're an education organization, K-12. We do a lot of education uh, in the public. We do a lot of, a lot of uh, travel around the states and Midwest. And the second thing we do, we do a lot of youth mentorship and organizing. Uh, there's a huge uh, climate movement among the youth. Of course, this is going to affect them deep, deeply, so they're very much involved. And thirdly, I work a lot in uh, policy. 
and uh, work uh, kind of behind the scenes and the politics of it. Uh, and that policy uh, work uh, is what what uh, you know enables uh, our clean energy to get a, uh, a good, solid start here in the state. We passed the in 07, the uh, clean energy uh, next generation energy bill that uh, put our state at 25 percent renewables by 2020, which we actually surpassed, and that jump started the, this economy. Uh, so we do kind of a combination of everything. You you kind of have to approach uh, climate on all fronts. It's uh, as we're starting to see, climate is involving everybody all the time now. Uh, we've been fairly lucky in in uh, Minnesota. We're positioned in a cooler area. We still have a lot of problems with the drought and floods and so forth. But uh, if you look at coastal areas like Florida, it's going to have a very serious economic hit when the sea level rise gets pretty seriously high now. And uh, so uh, we're in a pretty good state here, I, I feel, in the, in the Midwest. We we have a lot of sun, a lot of solar, a lot of brain power, uh, and we're really, really poised to be really independent here, economically independent here in the Midwest. What do you think it's going to take to push us to get there, though? Because there's still those naysayers, as you know, with everything, there's always the up, the other side. And there's a lot of people who think that this renewable energy is great, and others think we should not do it so quickly, et cetera. So what do you think is going to, is it going to be the policy, or what is it going to take? You know, it would be nice if, it was, if, it was a, if we were together like the space age and want to have a mutual goal. But, you know, you know, the Republican Party now, I think, is moving towards... Uh, agreeing that there is a climate change and it's changing. That's a big move forward, I think, because it, it really is a fact. And, but, you know, ourselves, we have to set our own our own standards for ourselves. You know, just one person living without uh, fossil fuels or whatever is not going to change everything, but we have, we have the power of the vote and many people working together. But I think it really starts with us. Maybe first... Uh, I take a look at your garbage and the amount of plastic that we're throwing out. Plastic is uh, fossil fuels, and uh, we really have to start reducing plastic use. It's a convenience, but uh, there's a way of getting around a lot of this plastic. And uh, you know, I'm not here to t- tell people the 10 things to do that I think people can figure out for themselves what they want to do. But uh, looking at your plastic consumption and your consumption in general, I think, is a good start as an individual. But we really have to work collectively because we're not going to uh, solve this problem or we're not going to adapt to the problem unless we, we do have a collective will. I think maybe maybe this is something that will draw us all together, at least around one topic. And uh, that's my hope, at least. Now, according to all the, the writings, it says you live off the grid in Ely, Minnesota. So are you embracing some of these technology or whatever you want to call it for conservation and, and preservation yourself? That's a good question. No, I was raised in the city, and uh, I moved up here uh, in 1970. I bought land when I was 19, actually, oh, wow. uh, three miles from the road. And, and I moved up full-time in, in, 19, in 1970 to live here. My, my goal was just to live here. And I started dog sledding and skiing school. That got me into dogs, and I had always worked on expeditions. But I moved up here to become self-sufficient. My goal was uh, I really wanted to, like, homestead. I wanted to raise my own food, build my own building, cut my own wood, reduce my... It wasn't so much as a... It, it wasn't... It was even before the Back to the Earth movement, before the hippie movement. I, <laughs> I was up here before that happened. And uh, it was just the way I wanted to simply live, a simpler life. 
uh, more so felt, and I always felt self-reliance was uh, was the to me primary the primary value of America to me was and it still is is our ability to be self-reliant to raise our own food and to be self-reliant maybe regionally as a people, and uh, so it wasn't any reaction to the city or a reaction that I want to be a you know I want to conserve everything for the for just the carbon footprint. Uh, I cut ice in the lake. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate to have, we have cold winters up here. I, the last 53 years, we've got ice for refrigeration in a root cellar, which was common, you know, 100 years ago. But uh, that's the way I chose to live. It's simpler, but it was just, just a matter of choice. And to me, uh, my personal value is it was a, it was a real high-quality life of living simpler. Uh, the first 12 years I lived up here in 1970, I basically lived on 2000 a year. And I didn't, you know, I didn't suffer for any want. And uh, so I, I maintained those values all the way through. Sustainability, I guess, is what they call it now. And uh, we've been energy self-sufficient here, too, since the very beginning. We've had solar for, I don't know, since the 70s here. So it's it's a pleasant way to do it. But, uh, you know, not everybody could cut ice, of course. Or, <laughs> and not everybody can have their own solar panels. But we, we have to work collectively on it. I mean, do you currently have electricity and things like that, or is it only off your own uh, solar power, et cetera? Yeah, I've never, uh, uh, I've brought probably four miles or more from the power line, and I'm, I'm uh, off-grid, uh, oh. you know, by intention. And, uh, I mean, I just, uh, I never wanted anything to do with electricity. Too complicated, and, you know, clearing a right, right away through the wilderness wasn't an option for me. I just, just didn't need it that way. I used generators for years for tools, but now we run everything, uh, our entire shop on solar. I mean, the solar and battery power now is pretty reasonable, actually. So we run everything. Our, our footprint is very, very minimal up here. Do you raise everything, like your own food and all that, too? Or do you do, I mean, would would you ever go to a grocery store, for example? Are you that off the yeah, grid? Yeah, back in the 70s and early 80s, you know, we raised a lot of our food. We, we would buy grains and mm-hmm. beans. We wouldn't, we wouldn't raise the grains and corn and that up here, but now because uh, I am I am busy uh, with the climate and expeditions and so forth, so I don't have the luxury of being able to have large gardens like I mm. once have. I do have gardens, of course, I have kitchen gardens and and uh, but I'm not totally self sufficient that way. But I do uh, continually. I always buy in bulk uh, in warehouses in the cooper cooperative warehouses in Minneapolis. So food is actually quite. Yeah, you know, I, I like cheese and butter. I buy it by a case in bulk, so you, know, you save a lot of money. But it's real good quality that way. I'm pretty much organic. I was a vegetarian for 25 years. I'm not now. I'm predominantly almost vegetarian, but you know, I like eat fish once in a while, and you know, I, I go out to dinner. And, you know, I'll eat meat once in a while too. I, I don't, I don't have too much qualms about that. But, but I live a simple, kind of a simple diet. And, uh, and I maintained my you know, good health all my life. I think that's uh, what was important to me is, was to ha- be inspired and have good vitality. And and I, I was able to do that by good habits. And, and I'm not a fanatic on habits and that. I mean, I, I don't go overboard on anything. I like to have fun and have, you know, have good times, too. Sure. But you have to route, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to have a certain amount of self-discipline, discipline, but you can't go overboard on it. Because then you're in, a, you know, you get into a lot of trouble that way too. But uh, you know, it's just I live just very basic. 
When you were teaching way back, you mentioned in the sciences, how did you get out of the sciences and end up doing expeditions? I'm just curious how that transition from teaching to taking a trek across the North Pole came about. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Actually, the, my education, I started my first expeditions when I was 15 and 16. I started climbing oh. when I was 16, and I kayaked a major expedition up the inside passage of Alaska when I was 17, and went over the mountains, actually. I mean, to d- the did your parents just say, go a- go ahead, Will? Or, yeah, or did they I- did. So you went on your own? I had a partner. I had oh, my a goodness. a friend of mine. Uh-huh. So, you know, I did first ascents when I was 20, 20,000-foot mountains in Peru, and I did a 3,000-mile kayak trip when I was 19. So I did, through my schooling, I did the expeditions in the, in the uh, summer, and I also worked my way through both high school and college. I mean, we had a rule in our family you could do whatever you wanted to but you had to you know you had to pay for it <laughs> including education and it was important to me to, uh, to get a good education i i, I had uh, learning disabilities because i'm left-handed you know being dyslexic i had trouble with math oh. and i had speech problems you know the whole thing but uh you know the handicaps did me well i just had to work harder and uh but i knew that i you know i, I wanted to get my degrees uh, and some teaching experience. I wanted to get an uh, undergraduate degree in science and a master's in education, and I felt I would need a three years of teaching. And then when I was 25, I had all those credentials all the way, so I left formal education behind and never went back to it. But uh, that's helped me a, a lot, my, my degrees, and uh, although I, you know, I haven't used it as a career, but as an educator, you know, it gives yeah. you the credibility and uh, also the knowledge of the sciences. So uh, it, it was important. Where did you get your degree, Will? Uh, I went to the University of St. Thomas. Oh, okay. Very good. And I went to a school called Benilde High School, which was Christian Brothers, all men at that time, very strict. <laughs> I was smart enough to know I needed discipline <laughs> in high school. Sure. And uh, so it was good. good. I had a great education, but I had to really work hard for it. And then what clicked to make you say, I'm going to go across the North Pole? Yeah, you know, I I went, to, I moved to Ely in uh, 1970, as I've mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I was very lucky because the school called Outward Bound here. I didn't know what Outward Bound was. I hitchhiked out there one day, oh. and, and they were just having their first winter courses, so I they hired me on the spot. So that got me into, uh, that lucky break got me into the outdoor education, like Outward Bound. I worked there two years. Uh, but I had my own ideas. Uh, they didn't have dogs. No one ran dogs and courses. So I quit there, and then I started my own school using dogs. I'd never oh. been on a dog sled before, but I knew that was a magic combination, and I was really successful at that. And that, and that was back when I was when working towards self-sufficiency, and part of my self-sufficiency was my livelihood. I wanted to do my purpose, which was teaching. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make my income that way, and also, you know, in the wilderness itself, for all through the 70s, I really concentrated on building my home and getting it to self-sufficiency. But, you know, within years, I had some really good dogs together. And that gave me then the the, the uh, medium, the avenue, of which to start uh, exploring, first of all, the more immediate Arctic. And then I gradually took longer and longer expeditions and uh, for a training expedition for the North Pole in 86. And winter of 85, I dog sledded from... Ely to Point Barrow, Alaska, about 5,000 miles. So I had, you know, I had lots of miles under me, and then yeah. I did the North Pole, and that led to other opportunities. We did Antarctica, 
one of my big breaks was I got in with National Geographic. But I think what changed my life was the Internet, because after the North Pole in 86, I was really starting to question my these major expeditions I was doing as a personal best. It was just seemed to be too extravagant. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was in 87 that I started working with El Gore, who was a freshman senator, and we worked on the ozone and some other environmental issues. And he gave me the study papers, the research papers on this was information highway, which was the Internet, which was coming on board, in, they thought, in 92. So when I read that, I realized that it gave me the opportunity to really marry my my vocation of teaching and my spirit of expeditions together. I realized that my I could make my expeditions very relevant by bringing them real-time into the classroom with the dogs. The dogs are really key. Wow. And uh, by doing that, you draw, you draw the curiosity out of the, the students. My my philosophy of education is real simple. You you first you have to get the curiosity, and once you have the curiosity, it's very simple to add the content. The content the content can be really complex and really difficult, but if you have the curiosity, younger people or you know, even adults will, will gobble up that. But it was the internet and expeditions that enabled me to really get into the classroom. That's the way I relate it to life. Uh, uh, I didn't really particularly care for school all the way through. It was a necessity. Mm-hmm. I was more of an outdoor kid. And uh, the Internet enabled me that to kind of fulfill a dream that I never even thought was, I never even had the vision of that dream, actually, that the Internet provided for me. So was Al Gore an influence then on you in, in getting this out there? He was. And I worked with Al, and I worked with a number of other, you know, national known environmentalists at that time. But we worked together as a team, actually, uh, we worked a lot on the, uh, together on the Alaskan Wildlife Refuge up in, up in Alaska. I worked on that, that issue for about 15 years. And then, yeah, and then when I did, three years later after the North Pole in, in 89-90, which was a large international team then, that enabled me to work internationally uh, on the Antarctic Treaty. And that was, uh, that was a great, uh, a great experience. And a, a lot of diplomacy involved in that. It, it was a, it was wonderful. But then when I moved to the city in 2002, and I never really worked locally on environmental issues. And that's when I you know, I committed myself to Minnesota and this region of being here for one, and, and, but then working on climate. And I really had a, I had a real desire to, if I could do anything with my life, I, I thought I, I, I wanted to create jobs or at least be able to be one of the influences behind the scene that enable people to have really good work, uh, jobs that would be there for them, you know, uh, and this is this is what the electrification of our of our society is all about. These are all good jobs. They're, they're going to be there forever as long as we need electricity, and there's a lot of other jobs like that. I felt that there was too much training of younger people for, uh, first of all, schooling that they couldn't get any practical work out of, and uh, and there's a lot of, lot of uh, training of skills that for jobs that never really materialized. And I, I thought that was really a shame. I, I wanted to be part of something that really had substance that, you know, if you work hard for to be skilled and, and to get a job, you want to have a job that's going to be with you, uh, preferably for the rest of your life. So and that's what the, one of the things about the climate that did for me, and, and uh, I'm really happy about that. On your first expeditions, was the climate even a part of the thoughts on your mind, or was it just a matter, I'm going to do this and see if I can do this? Yeah, early on, no, not really. In the 80s, though, I was watching 
I remember 81, 82, I was watching very closely the climate in the winter in particular for a sig- any signals of warming, of anything that was out of out of character with the climate. But that Those signals started getting a little louder, and it got very much louder and ob- more obvious at the end of the 80s. It, the decade of the 80s was where the big change, the, the big changes happened. You know what happened? The big I, I look at the real watershed. The tipping point for me was in 1990. The, the carbon dioxide level was measured by parts per million, and the, the normal high record is 280 parts per million for the, for the warm part of a glacial age, and it drops to 180. But in, uh, the scientists said that if our our carbon level, CO2 level, goes up to 30, 300 parts per million. That's when the ice will start melting. And uh, oh. we reached 300 parts per million in 1990. Wow. And that's when it all starts changing because that's when the ice starts melting. And once you start to having the melt, ice melting, that reflective area starts disappearing. And then you start having energy going into the earth. And that energy got more and more and more. And then more ice melted. And now we're starting to see a destabilization of our climate. And that all had to do with that tipping point of starting to lose the ice. I want to congratulate you on an award, a 2021 Best Adventure Film Award at the Mountain Film Festival. And there is an independent film after Antarctica that is out. It, uh, I guess, played May 13th to the 23rd at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Film Festival. And it's continuing to be shown is that your latest venture? Are there any things beyond that? And tell me a little bit about that project. Well, after after I thought it was a film, I uh, worked with two young filmmakers that were 25, five years ago. They're 30 now, mm-hmm. originally from Minneapolis to St. Paul. They live in San Francisco. I, I committed to them. They wanted to do a film. I really trusted them. They put a lot of time in it. They visited me on two of my expeditions. We went to Antarctica together. I gave them all my, uh, you know, all my film everything they wanted. And then uh, in April, they showed me what they had, and it was, I thought, really good. And it's now, it's just in film festivals now. It's not out in the public, but it has been uh, winning, mm-hmm. you know, awards, various categories. It won, won at the, I think it was with the Jackson Wild Award, which was, it was kind of a combination between human animals and environment, kind of a cross between that. It took the, the long, long documentary award for that. So, so I'm going to be working on that probably the last next year and a half, following that around, draw awareness of the climate and also awareness of the Seeger Center up here in Ely. Wow, that's amazing. What can we do as an individual to get active and do something to make a difference? Well, I, I would say, you know, you look at what you can do on your own, but I, I would say number one would be connect with other people. You know, you, you can figure out where whatever your interests are, but... You know, we need help just to join wherever your interests are because, you know, individually, the Antarctica, there's the six of us that, across it, and we had a saying, we had this, we barely survived, and I was surprised that we even survived it. We had a saying, if we were one straw, we'd be blown over, but we were six straws, and we were strong together. And that would be my advice to people is to, to get wherever it is. It might be your congregation, to your school, to whatever community events you might be, but get involved with other people. Get involved with you know people that have real positive attitudes and so forth. Get around that. I would suggest to everyone is just lay off the media a little bit. People <laughs> are too much into the media. Social media is yeah. fine, but you know it's really difficult because there's not all there's not a lot of really good messages out there. And I 
myself, I right now I don't just couldn't take it anymore. Three months ago, and I get yeah. tuned out right now. But but I think we're we're overloaded, and I think uh, you know just become a little more relaxed that way when you when you do that. I think you have to be aware of that and, and arguing with people and oh this is that you know you, we we really have to be more tolerant of other people's views and accepting. And you don't have to accept their values all the time, but we just have to be tolerant. But we have to be around with. Not just the people that think like us. I would challenge you to be around with people that don't think like you, and and uh, get it, get into a real positive uh, situation. You know, where you're tolerant, you can listen to each other. We really need that. That feels good. That's almost spiritual when we're we're at that realm. If we could set aside a sword a little bit, there's a lot of opportunity to do that right now. We need that. Well, Steger, we are so happy and delighted that you were able to visit with us. Is there a website or someplace you could direct people to go to find out more information about climate change and things that you feel are important to know to educate people? Yeah, you can go to uh, the Steger Center, my last name, S-T-E-G-E-R, Steger Center, Steger Wilderness Center. That's the activities uh, that we're doing up here in in Ely, and uh, that's stegercenter.org. And then if you want to get involved in climate Go to uh, Climate Generation. That's our, our website for that. We, we have uh, 19 full-time staff, and we're very professional. We specialize in education and that. So really go on that site, climate, climategeneration.org. And that's, I think you can spend a lot of time on that site. It's really well done. So do that and uh, you know, look, look at this as a positive challenge. Thank you for all that you do, and, and thank you so much for visiting with me, Will. Okay, thank you so much. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner, member NCUA, more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.